0: and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled. I've been journaling online, I guess in blog form, about sobriety since my very first very shaky, very scary day without alcohol almost eight years ago in March of 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today, we have a listener who is having a a doubly good week. She's celebrating her first year of sobriety and a special
1: birthday this week. Jill, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you, Jean. I'm very excited to be here and uh, happy to have these celebrations that I can share with you today. Well, I always encourage people to do
0: something to mark a milestone and something that's important to them. And so I was really touched that you had written and said this was something you wanted to do to help mark your milestone. I think that's really lovely and generous of you to do that. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. And um, it's, it's my pleasure and I'm, I'm grateful that I'm able to, uh, to celebrate in this way for sure. Well,
0: let's start by just getting to know you. Tell us about yourself and about your story.
1: Okay. Well, um, just a little bit about myself. Um, I, I turned 55, actually, on Monday, although uh, I say that in my head I'm 30, but I'm thankful that I'm not 30. <laughs> <'Cause> I <laughs> wouldn't want to have to go through the last 25 years, quite frankly. Uh, I'm a real estate agent, actually, and I sell uh, exclusively in a retirement community, so that's kind of interesting. I get to... Um, Spend time with some really interesting older adults. Um, I'm a mother of a, a, an accomplished young woman who just turned 30, and I have a great husband. Um, third time's the charm. Uh, I'm a breast cancer survivor. I was diagnosed in 2011, and um, thankfully it was caught early, stage one, and all's well so far. And. Um, Yeah, with regard to my story, um, it really needs to begin in childhood, uh, because uh, that's where I got my examples of how to handle life through heavy drinking. Um, My parents divorced when I was really young. Uh, I was the younger of two daughters, and uh, I did see my father regularly in uh, childhood. We saw him once a week. He did drink. He and my stepmom drank. That wasn't really um, impactful in my relationship with him. I ended up having other issues with him ultimately, but not because of his drinking. But my mom um, was a different story. Uh, Her parents were uh, the products of big Irish working class families. Everybody drank. My mother uh, had lots of cousins who were heavy drinkers. We spent a lot of time with that side of the family when I was growing up. My impressions were always music, laughter, dancing, alcohol makes everything so fun until it turns. And then there's tears and arguments and things being thrown and cops being called. And um, it was really a a chaotic, scary environment in my um, early childhood years. As it turns out, I believe my mother was self-medicating her depression and anxiety because later in life, she started taking anti-anxiety medication and her personality changed a lot for the better. Uh, We like to say she mellowed out, but um, I think that she just had mental health issues that weren't being addressed and were, in fact, being exacerbated by her heavy drinking. My sister as well, who was two years older than me, I'm almost certain uh, she had an undiagnosed bipolar disorder that she medicated even before adolescence with drinking and drug use, and uh, that persisted for the most part throughout her life until she found the thing that killed her in heroin, Uh, and I... She died of an overdose, I want to say, when she was about 40 years old. Uh, I can get into a lot of the deep... Yeah, yeah, me too. And, you know, honestly, Jean, the saddest thing about it all was uh, she had two children, and and when they were younger, you know, they were with her, and then as her her drug use... uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know just got worse and worse uh, her her older daughter uh ended up living with my mother, and her younger son he was uh, his father was still in the picture, so he went to live with his dad and there were a lot of years my sister wasn't part of anyone's life so um, i had a I had a period where she and I reconnected she was in a court-ordered program, I was involved in her life. She was reintroduced to the family. That lasted for about a year and a half, and then she, as I think they say, go back, went back out, and, um, you know, it was maybe a year later that she died. But the saddest thing, really, was the fact that once everyone got over losing a mother and a sister and a daughter that young, it, it, it didn't really make much of an impact in people's lives because she wasn't there. Um, and that's, I think, the saddest thing at all, of all about addiction. Um, so uh, I could get into a lot of the details about childhood, but um, because there are some other things that I think that I can touch on that I haven't really heard people talk about in bubble hour interviews, I just want to kind of... Summarize it by saying It was trauma I never really identified it As traumatic because I never Wanted to see myself as a victim I had a real Identity in being an overcomer And uh, Because I started To take responsibility For my mother's emotional States I didn't want to be The rebellious one I wanted to be the Good girl Uh, I just uh, I had to forgive her for her shortcomings and I, I thought I did. <laughs> um, and I, I needed to, uh, just embrace myself as, you know, the strong person and, uh, the person who learned from everyone's examples of what not to do. Uh, but the reality is, uh, growing up in that environment with the mother I had who really couldn't manage any kind of stress without drinking and really just had two modes in my early childhood. She was either drunk or angry. It wasn't safe for me to feel. I didn't know how to feel. And at heart, I felt wrong. I felt shame. And that really impacted So many of my decisions later in life, everything from who I allowed myself to get in relationship with to the treatment that I tolerated to, you know, over and over again, instances of self-sabotage and bad financial decisions and ultimately a psychological dependence on drinking, which I thought I would never have because I was so determined to never be the woman that my mother was. Oh, oh, where do I go from here? Um, Adult drinking (laughs) patterns, for the most part, um, I would characterize up until I was in my late 30s as being periods of social binge drinking um, alternating with long periods where I barely drank, and it was all, you know, revolved around my environment. So, you know, in college uh, I had a restaurant job, and that's a real drinking culture. So there was a lot of, you know, partying after work involved there, and, and some '80s recreational drug use as well. But thankfully, I never, I never became addicted to um, to any of the drugs that were used back then. Um, then I you know, my first husband was five years sober, uh, when he and I started seeing each other. So although he he did not tell me not to drink, it just really wasn't part of our lives and by that point I was raising my daughter and I was so invested in uh not having a daughter with the same experience as I did that I certainly didn't wanna have that be part of her childhood experience. So I barely drank then um her dad and i did not have a good marriage but i coped with that with binge eating because <laughs> uh. that was healthy and uh when he and i split up um i um, remarried and um that too was not a good relationship um but uh, you know i did drink socially in that marriage but and i i smoked and There were times when I did, you know, have like a binge and restrict eating cycle and over-preoccupation with body image, that sort of thing, but um, habitual drinking was not part of my life back then either. Um, When my second husband and I split up I began a real estate career that was very very successful and um, that was in the early 2000s when um, the real estate market here in the U.S. was booming and um, I have to say I was not one of those silly realtors that um, you know had a good month and bought a Mercedes and a waterfront property. I was new. <laughs> it wouldn't yeah. continue on like that but my whole my real motivation in working that hard and um, and and striving for success was uh, to make sure that I was in a position where I wasn't having to rely on my daughter's dad to really um, fund or help me in any way fund her college education and because he wasn't probably going to be capable of it and um, and I was determined that she was going to be able to go to the school she wanted and have the education she she wanted and not have the kind of um, pressure on her uh, to make something of that college education that cost me so much money, like, was placed on me. Um, So uh, real estate was booming, and I – had work hard play hard kind of colleagues in in the real estate uh company that i was with but i also was out a lot in the evenings with clients and on the phone talking to people so if i knew that i wasn't going to have to interface with people i, I could definitely tie one on but it wasn't a daily occurrence and that really didn't begin until the market started to tank and my daughter went off to college the same year, so I went from making good money um, and getting no kind of assistance with my daughter's college education to making 10% of what I was making. And I was very worried about being able to um, to pay for her schooling. I was barely sleeping, so I decided to go back into the business-to-business sales world. And I ended up in a company that was just had the absolutely most toxic work environment I'd ever been in. Um, I drank heavily. Uh, everyone drank that worked there. It, was, it, was, it became a, a daily occurrence for me during that time. I remember uh, jokingly saying to some of my coworkers, gosh, it's getting to be so embarrassing on recycling day when I take out all those wine bottles and one of my colleagues said, "Oh well, you've got to go to the boxes. It's it's much more eco-friendly and far less embarrassing." And then somebody else piped up and said, "I just break the little bag right out of the box and carry it around with me on the weekends. It works really well." Oh wow! Uh, so there was, yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, the beginnings of that, you know, wine humor going on. Then it seems to me that really, I didn't really think much of it. Um, It didn't seem out of the ordinary to me uh, because everybody around me was doing it. We were in recession. What else were you going to do? What ended up kind of putting the brakes on that to a certain extent were two things. Um, One was that one of my friends who worked for that company, uh, she and I started to socialize a great deal outside of work. And um, my partner got to know her, too. She lived close by, and she had this great party house with a pool and lots of people over in the summer. So we would spend a lot of time with her. And um, at first it was, you know, we thought it was really fun, and it was certainly a great distraction from... Um, the financial pressure that I was under, so it seemed to me. But um, I could, we could both see that she was really starting to um, to devolve. And uh, over the course of a couple of years, she stopped going, being able to go to work regularly, and uh, she just had a string of really uh, bad relationships with one guy after another and was making bad decisions like drinking and driving and I took a step back and said I'm part of the problem here I'm normalizing this for her and so I didn't want to um not spend time with her but I started to take a stance when I was there that I wasn't going to drink and um just to get drive the point home to her And that that was one thing That put the brakes on it for me And then uh, in 2011 When I got my cancer diagnosis That too uh, Was a wake up call for me Although no one told me That um, you know Jill It could have been your drinking behavior That contributed to this Because I, I, there was no family history Of breast cancer in my family It's not like my mom had a tr- gene for it and it was ironic because she was a heavy smoker. Well, at the time she was alive, she was a heavy smoker. She never exercised. She ate incredibly poorly, uh, drank lots of beer, but had no cancer. And and there I was with a cancer diagnosis. Uh, thankfully, it was stage one. Uh, I was able to go through it just with radiation and uh Although um, no one told me you should abstain from alcohol or uh, limit your alcohol consumption, nobody told me that. Not even my uh, my my oncologist. Um, I just didn't feel all that great, and um, and so my drinking became more social in nature after I went through treatment. Um, 2013, um, my longtime partner and I um, got married. We decided we needed something to celebrate. So we, <laughs> after <laughs> a decade of being together through bad times and good times and, and our relationship hadn't changed and I finally had a comfort level that he's a keeper. Not Well, I knew he was a keeper. I just finally had a comfort level that marriage wasn't going to change our relationship so we got married and got back from my honeymoon. Um, we had gone out to wine country in um, in California and uh, got back from my honeymoon. And uh, that, that morning I uh, got a call from my stepdad uh, that my mom was at the hospital and she had had a stroke. <clears throat> so in the years between when I left home and that point, my mother and I... Definitely had a more cordial relationship. We were, not I would say, close, but she knew that if she needed anything, she could call me, and I felt that if I needed anything, I could call her, but I really never perceived that I would need anything from her bad enough to call her. Um, so when she had that stroke... I became more involved in her life and in my stepfather's life. And uh, it just brought all the stuff I didn't deal with. Um, I packed all those bags up in the attic and being put in a caretaker position. And at that point, my sister had passed away. So it was only on me to help out. Um, it just made those bags crash through the ceiling and um, and drinking became part of my coping mechanism again uh, when, when I was uh, watching my mom fail and being put in a position where, as a therapist told me, you have all of the responsibility and none of the authority. <laughs> so <laughs> um, my mom had, she had the stroke, she did a little better, then she started having back issues, she had back surgery, it was botched, she started having uh, nerve damage, she was dragging her feet, literally dragging her feet, I was worried about her falling, they wouldn't move from the house that they were in with a completely unsuitable setup for her, so she ended up falling, breaking her hip, couldn't Tried to go back home. It was all on me to figure that out. So um, we spent time getting stair lifts and home care to assist me and grab bars and extra railings. And she wasn't even home for 40 hours, and it became apparent that it wasn't going to work. And then she had to move to assisted living. And um, I just – it brought back (laughs) – all of my feelings of not being enough, not doing enough, not um, not having what it took to really be valuable uh, to the people that I cared about and loved, and it was it was really devastating. Uh, my mom passed away in. October of 2015. And by that point I had decided that I was going to get back into real estate. I thought, well, Mm -hmm. I have so much to handle now with elderly mom and elderly stepdad. So much of what they need is during business hours. Um, I felt like I was taking time away from the employer that I, um, Was working for. So I decided to get my license again, get back into real estate. My mom passed away while I was sort of transitioning out of my full time position and back into real estate. And very shortly thereafter, my stepdad um, asked if. he and I and my husband could all start sharing homes so he wouldn't be alone and it seemed like a really good idea because I was over there all the time cleaning and bringing him food and if he had doctor's appointments in areas where he wasn't comfortable driving, taking him there and helping him sort out my mom's things so we decided to combine households which we did in early 2016 and uh, I, I was Again, looking forward to getting back into real estate. My stepdad was still driving at that point, and although he never cooked, I mean, he was mobile, he was self sufficient. I I thought he just wanted company. As it turns out, he wanted somebody to do the things for him that my mother did. Um, you know, he really didn't want company, and it really we'd always had a good relationship, and suddenly it turned very tense, um, and that was very upsetting. Uh, and then I found that uh, all the enthusiasm that I brought to my real estate career and getting it up and running when I first got into it in 2003, it wasn't there anymore. And I was feeling very negative And I was uh, doubting myself. And I was predicting worst case scenarios. And um, I just felt like the way I thought had changed significantly and I was in the library one day and I happened to see this book called The 30 Day Sobriety Solution which I've heard other people on the podcast talk about and um, Just last it's week, a pretty enough a <laughs> Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brendan yeah, but... last week I, I interviewed a gentleman named Brendan who mentioned that same book and it's funny, Jill, that you bring it up because my comment was, "Oh, it seems to me guys love that book, women not so much." So, <laughs> tell me, tell me your experience with the Thirty Day Solution.
1: Well, I'll tell you that the, I think it's very craftily um, titled because it's pretty non-threatening. Thirty days, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, it's, it's innocuous enough that you can pick it up and, and read the, the insert and. Maybe check it out without thinking you're taking on the big book of alcohol, you know AA. Uh, but the the exercises in the book shed tremendous light for me on beliefs that I had that I never realized I had. Um, for instance, just talking about what what do you believe based on what you're your past experience were experiences were with alcohol? And the answer I wrote was, all adults drink, and if you're not with them, you're left out. And that was definitely my experience in childhood. You know, the only time I got a, a, any kind of positive attention from my mother was when she was drunk and I was willing to giggle and laugh and dance with them and not whine about being too tired and wanting to go home. Um, so it, it just, it was, it made me be more introspective about my beliefs about drinking and what I thought it was bringing to me than I had been in the past. And then it, it helped with visualizing positives in your life without alcohol too. Cause I, I had most of my friends I drank with, and, um, and they had all the high-functioning people, nobody other than my friend I mentioned earlier, and she, at that point, had gotten herself into rehab, and she's been sober now for years, and I'm so happy for her. But other than her, you know, I had drink friends I drank with very heavily, but people that you know, had successful careers and good marriages and good relationships with their kids and had their financial uh, houses in order. So it was helpful for me to see that I could step away from it and have even more positives in my life that would be worth the sacrifices of what I might be leaving behind. And, um, and I was, I, I think I, stopped for about 90 days um, as a result of the exercises I did in that book and uh, when I started to drink again you can't unsee what you've seen so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I can't say that I never drank too much after that but it wasn't an every night occurrence and when I did drink too much I felt really not. Sometimes physically badly, but psychologically and spiritually I suffered because I knew that um, that wasn't the vision that I wanted for my life long term. So, um, 2017, uh, I was back in real estate, uh, working in the retirement community. Um, so I had a little bit of distance from the house, um, which I needed because although I was doing my best to keep my stepdad healthy and happy, um, uh, I knew enough at that point to realize I can only control so much. And, and he, he just wasn't going to be happy without my mom. I did what I could, but <laughs> <laughs> there's only so much a person can do. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I was realizing that I probably needed to or or wanted to put myself in a position where I was living alcohol-free again. There were a couple of times at the end of the 2017 where I hadn't planned to drink and I ended up drinking and I, I was journaling at that point. I was journaling about why am I doing this? It's not bringing anything to me. You know that am I gonna do it tonight? Am I not gonna do it tonight? It just got very exhausting the uh the night before my fifty fourth birthday, my husband and I went out with some folks that he hadn't met, but that I adore and we I just couldn't wait for my husband to meet these people and we all had a great time. We went to a lovely restaurant, terrific food, great conversation. My husband doesn't like red wine, so my friends and I split a bottle of red. And the whole time I'm thinking, when we're finishing this bottle, are we going to get another bottle? I want more wine. I I don't want just one bottle of wine. Nobody else wanted more wine. So after dinner, I ordered Grand Marnier. And I wasn't drunk. I was was fine. Uh, I wasn't hungover the next day. But I just got up and I thought, well, what better day one than my birthday? <laughs> I'm going to give myself the gift of this year and to see what sort of changes um, a life without alcohol will bring. And I don't even think it was 60 days, 90 days, and that I just knew this isn't going to be a part of my life anymore. It's not bringing anything to me. I like myself better. Um uh, and I like the way I think better, and I'm excited for for what I can become without this. Um, my dad, my stepfather, uh, he passed away uh, a couple of months after I made that decision. Uh, it was unexpected. He hadn't really been sick. He had a stroke. Uh, my husband and I came home. We had I had dinner out. We were only gone for maybe an hour and a half and came home and he was on the floor. He hadn't realized he'd had a stroke. Um, he, it was his birthday two days later and I had arranged for a party. He always told me that he wanted a bagpiper playing Danny boy at his funeral. Well, as a joke, I had, I was having a birthday party for him and I was bringing a bagpiper in and I was going to say, I planned to say, well, he can play Danny Boy if you'd like, if you'd like to hear it. <laughs> and we can decide if we, if we want to hire him for your bagpiper ceremony, um, you know, years from now. And darned if um, he didn't play at my stepdad's graveside um, a week later. Oh. But I know. Um, but I, I tell you, Jean, I was not prepared for the level of grief I felt after he passed away because it it was like everyone everyone was gone and I said to my daughter, I don't understand why I feel this devastation when I never really even got much from the family of origin. Like why why do I feel this way? And she said, Well that's probably the point. And um smart daughter yeah, she is a smart daughter. She's a wonderful, wonderful person, and um, I couldn't be prouder of her. And she's, she's my friend, and I really admire her. Uh, she was seeing a great therapist, and so she, although she was very clear, I don't want you seeing my therapist. <laughs> she said, there's plenty of other good people in the practice. So um, I started seen a therapist, I probably I guess in June and it's it's been so helpful and um, between that and just the way I think now that's so much clearer, I finally feel like I have a level of acceptance and the thing I always used to say about my family is and really my family, my first husband, my second husband, anybody that was in my life that if i really wanted to i could tell a tale of being wronged um i always said well they did the best they could for who they are and i believed it in my head but now i believe it in my heart because um i've been able to heal and i've been and i've been able to acknowledge the failings that i um had with the people I loved because of the decisions I made. So, you know, there's forgiving myself and there's forgiving other people. Uh, Some really wonderful things that have happened uh, in the past year are that um, I've always called myself an aspiring writer and um, I went to a fantastic writer's retreat for women in the summer, and I started a project that's been rolling around in my head for a really long time, Um, and I'm really happy with what I've written so far. Um, I uh, got a tattoo. (laughs) 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 But which is hilarious. I've never even thought I'd be anyone to get a tattoo. And now I've got one that just happened this weekend. Actually. I need details uh, that was, on that. And oh, on your writing. I'd be, I, I'd be happy to give you details about that. So, um, you know, music has always been, I've always loved music and I have a theory, at least I don't know. if It's definitely true for me, but it I think it might be true for other people too. So, I think for people that aren't in touch with their feelings, haven't been in touch with their feelings, don't feel that it's okay to feel that music can be an exception to that. At least that's how my experience of music was for many, many years. And and that was true of my mother too. Like my mom, when she was, uh, you know, Before she mellowed, uh, medically mellowed, she was just not a nice person, a really angry person. Grew up really in a time in a family environment where she was kind of racist. (laughs) And um, her favorite song was Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green And red roses too And I see faces and You know, the, all the colors of the rainbow and, I, I mean, it just kind of If you think about it It's just kind of Mind-blowing um, Maybe not But it, it seemed to be to me Anyway, so um, There's a song by Stevie Wonder Called As Are you familiar with it? What's it called? It's called as and um, it, the lyrics are as oh, mean i can't I can't sing, I'm not going to sing on your podcast because nobody will <laughs> listen but but the lyrics are i mean the the refrain goes, I'll be loving you always, and then they're backup singers that sing um as long as the always is as, as the stars will burn out in the sky. It's a beautiful song. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. uh, So I've always loved it, but one day recently um, I was listening to it, and there's there's a part of the lyric that says, As today I know I'm living, but tomorrow may make me the past, but that I mustn't fear, for I know deep in my mind the love of me I've left behind and i'll be loving you always and i'm saying it right now and i'm tearing up i felt like it was like a message from my mom Aww. and so my ta- my tattoo is um an infinity symbol with the word as written in my daughter's handwriting inside the infinity Aww. symbol so Aww. that that was yeah that's a gift that's, to really, beautiful. that's really
2: beautiful thank you that's really beautiful
1: so um so I've meditated and I've therapied and I've written and uh, I just um I'm just really happy to be who I am, where I am right now. And I guess that's kind of the end of this part of my 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 story. Um
0: I it strikes me, you know, as you as you, as you say all this, just that you've like you've worked hard in the last year. To I can tell in in the insights that you've had and things that you've said in this that you you have worked on healing in the last year and probably have had a sort of moments of awareness even while you were drinking that you know you sort of logged for future use. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
0: I. I talk um, in my blog and sometimes on this show, I, I like to talk about things I've learned in therapy because I feel like a lot of people don't really know what therapy is or what its benefit is. And, um, you know, they think, oh, it's just for when you're really screwed up and you have to get your head fixed. But, you know, in my mm-hmm. experience, it was really um, it was it was really helpful and it gave me a lot of new Tools and new ways to think about things and um things that I thought were normal because of how I was raised, just as an example, like being super critical of myself and others, that mm-hmm. was normal to me and mm-hmm. um, and to learn that that was a learned behavior and that that was optional, and that i could I could unteach myself that was something that therapy gave me so tell me about some of the things that you that that you're comfortable sharing but even just maybe some tools Hmm. or
1: some insights that you've picked up in therapy over the well the most recent example i can give you is um emdr eye movement desensitization i think it's response uh, emdr or yeah that's the acronym and what it's meant to do is to uh, take the trauma out of traumatic memories, uh, and that has been incredibly helpful to me. Uh, so my understanding of, of how, how that works? works,
0: I am, mm-hmm. and I and um, I have had a couple guests on the show talk about it. But so my understanding of how it works is that um, things that um, that we might ruminate on or like past traumas that if we think about them we basically are reliving them like they stay in our is it the prefrontal cortex or whatever they stay in like the emergency response section of our brain yeah they, thinking of still, them like,
1: i believe it is yeah
0: <laughs> they it puts us back into that like thinking of it gives you A stress response it's not it hasn't been refiled into long-term memory and so if you work with a therapist trained in EMDR
1: is
0: is the process that they they take you back to that memory but then they use specific eye movements while you're in it and that somehow the brain the memory and the eye movements together refile that into the long term memory where it belongs versus staying in the emergency response section,
1: is that a fair explanation that, that is that is fair, and it it it, it was incredibly helpful um, the um, The therapist started with an unpleasant memory you know just to uh, test out how it would feel to me, and then um, in the the next session, session we did, one of my worst memories, and I even had, a, I had a hard time. You know, that's the level of, um, I guess, self protectiveness I had continued to carry around, where I had a hard time. Oh, what's my worst memory going to be? <laughs> like, you know, I just had to really. Uh, think about it, and I was thinking of something completely different, and then I said, "Oh no, we've got to do this." And it was, it was, it was a really devastating me- memory. But by the time uh, she had completed the treatment, the the trauma was had t- been taken out of it. And for me, uh, a lot of my response to my um, my present if it was an unfavorable situation and it called up um, a feeling of not being enough or a fearing of disappointing or failing someone, especially somebody older, and working in a retirement community, I I am exposed to that a fair amount. <laughs> um, there's, there are circumstances that I'm responsible for that I don't, have a whole lot of control over the timing of when they get resolved, and so um you know if I allow myself to get too stressed out about feeling disapp- like I'm disappointing people, it can be r- really um, triggering for me but uh working with that therapist has really helped me well first of all identify why i'm feeling the way I'm feeling and to be able to to acknowledge that this is old stuff. This is old programming. Um, ground yourself in the here and now. Uh, you can. This is a, this is the reality. That is not the reality. And mm-hmm. I, I've used tools like recording voice memos of uh, what certain feelings feel like, because that's how fundamental it was for me. Um, the unwillingness to, our inability to actually. Feel my feelings, um, and that's something that my therapist has encouraged too. Just um, identify the feelings and um, how they feel uh, physically in your body, and um, and know that you're okay in the here and now. And boundaries. <laughs> there's there's something I uh, I. I needed to incorporate in my life greatly, and um, and that's a work in progress, but I'm definitely further along in the process than I was before I stopped drinking.
0: I'm smiling as you say boundaries because you are the lady who had, you know, your stepfather move in with you, so I'm guessing <laughs> that <laughs> having a big heart is one thing, and those of us that are, you know, kind-hearted and also tend towards people pleasing and good girl syndrome boundaries not only do they not come easily I mean to me they were just completely foreign like I had to learn even what that meant me, me too
1: me too and um uh, I'll tell you uh I can really I could really spend a whole other hour talking it about um how difficult it is to maintain appropriate boundaries in a caregiving role because you know in the medical profession it's very much in the interest of of the medical complex that you take on way more as a daughter than you should be responsible for because then you know the elder Thank and you. they don't have to be responsible and I really have a lot of anger about how my mother's situation was handled with her senior living community and her physicians and how, you know, with my stepdad, the man had, he was perfectly lucid. He was hard of hearing. He was stubborn so I can understand how it was much uh, better for people, much more comfortable for people to try to talk to me about his situation than to talk to him. But boy, it was really infuriating to me as somebody that was trying to, you know, encourage him to have a level of personal responsibility uh, about his health, to have physicians and healthcare people want to circumvent the patient himself, because there was a woman standing there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so. it, my I, little rant you and about have, caregiving. Well, you, you and I
0: have a lot in common in that regard because um, my dad passed away last year. And oh, um, although hard. I was, it, it's hard. And we had a, some um, challenges in our relationship in, in the last few years, unfortunately, his, his, um, decline his cognitive decline kind of brought out some uh, personality things and whatever he was he was confused yeah. and and I didn't yeah. understand and so I, I took a lot personally that I in, in retrospect shouldn't have so it's hard emotionally and but I had two sisters and my mom to share that burden with and the, you know the four of us really Got through the the worst of it together, and um, we didn't work together that well, but we tag teamed is what we did. And that's good. feeling feeling those feelings sober. I I felt like I was I was processing my emotions in real time, um, mm-hmm. and I was so glad to be sober through it because by the time he died, I it was hard. Like I. You know, I felt like a peeled grape a lot of times. But I feel like I was able to uh, adjust to his passing quicker than I would have had I been drinking. And um, and also, okay, this is what I wanted to ask you. I'm sorry, I don't want to get mm-hmm. lost in like my own no, thoughts no, and emotions because no, no. it's such an emotional thing. But it I just kind of had this, this realization I had this week just came up as you were talking about your mom and your tattoo and everything. And that is that what I'm realizing (laughs) now is that I had like all so much like yucky feelings and emotions and experiences and memories of my dad's last years. And that now a year later, two years later, um, I'm starting to get to where other memories come back. Like just out of the blue, I just sort of remember like him looking up and laughing at me or in a nice way, you know, or doing something, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, he bought mm -hmm. me a coat one day. That was a really big deal to me. And, and I Uh, realized that when we're, when we're not swirling the drain of our own crappy emotions and just rehashing all the old crap all the time, when we're more healthy mentally, then even though they're gone, our relationship with them can still heal and, move forward in new ways
1: and it sounds like
0: that is that what you're experiencing with your mom
1: i i'm experiencing it with my mom and um and i and i'm experiencing it with my stepdad you know with my mom even though i i was drinking um i think by the time she was in assisted living the worst of that it was it wasn't really happening that much because i always had to be on call you know i it was just um my life wasn't mine, and my time wasn't mine. I was always waiting for this other shoe to drop with her. So, um, but I didn't really have any regrets with um, of failing her because, well, first of all, I was with her when she died. That <laughs> I really felt regret about my stepdad because um, because we'd ha- we'd been under the same roof for way longer than I was dealing with my mom. Um, decline and, and my mom and I never really lived together when that was going on I was there all the time with, but I wasn't under the same roof, roof as her um, also I wasn't with my stepdad when he died and knowing how um, whenever he had a, a medical situation or wasn't feeling well his first question was where's Jill where's Jill where's Jill um, I I just I know that he was scared and he was alone when he passed. And at least I, you know, I mean, I can't dwell on it. There's nothing I can do, but it really, it did fill me with remorse. Uh, But now I'm, you know, I think about the fact that I gave him the, the funeral service he wanted, and with every detail of it, and it was beautiful. And um, I so appreciate his generosity. He was always someone that he was he was very frugal with himself and lived far below his means. And he just was so generous to me and to my daughter and to. Um, my late sister's kids, when he passed, and set up everything in a way that minimized tax burdens for us, and you know, so that's who he was, and he showed his love in the way that he could, and he did. I mean, he he did, and we had we had some laughs here, we had some good times, and and after I stopped drinking, I learned to handle his. His less than cooperative times much better. I just wish that I had caught on sooner. But um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> uh,
0: I also wanted to ask you quickly about your sister. Um, you know that's yeah. an old wound. Have you yeah. have you found that you sort of have new perspective around that? And have you had to kind of find? Have you dug up resentments and found forgiveness, or how's that thought pattern evolved for you?
1: Oh um <clears throat> well, for the longest time um what I felt was it that was another example of failure for me and fa- oh, I bet so um, my daughter and i uh this year she there's a storytelling series here in the town that we um that we live in that she knew of, and they were having a workshops, and she asked if I wanted to go so she and I went to a workshop, and uh, the 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 workshops and the the shows when they ha- actually have the shows, people get up and they tell stories with certain themes. So in the workshop, the theme was failure, and um, I told a story about my sister because um, I I wanted to save her and I wanted to be part of her come back story, and um, and I wasn't, and she's gone now. Uh, but I did what I could, and she had a better life or a, a better couple of years of life with reconnection with her children than she would have had if I hadn't been there for her. Because, I, I mean, no one else was, you know, she... She wasn't part of anybody's life, and I just reached out to her a couple of months before she ended up in that court-ordered program to tell her that she couldn't live with me and I wasn't going to give her money. But if she tried to get it, was ever trying to get clean, I would do everything I could to help her. And that's why she reached out to me, um, and that she even knew where to find me to reach out to me. Uh, I, I, I feel. I feel grateful that I did not have her sickness because yeah. she was just trying to make herself better. And
0: explain that. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Well, I, I I know she had bipolar disorder. I mean, even as a small child, she could never have peace ever. If things were quiet, if things were. Uh, boring. It drove her insane. She just always had to be stirring things up. She was always gravitating toward people that were older and that were exciting. And then she would get very down on herself. Um, you know, when we were small children, if we if there were a group of kids. Um, she couldn't just play the game. her game was to turn everybody against me <laughs> i mean there was there was definitely something psychological going on with her that drove her to to medicaid and um that's not how I dealt with my environment. I feel very grateful that I turned in word and that I was a writer and a reader and used my imagination and looked for people to emulate that didn't have the kind of behavior that my family did. She kind of went in the opposite direction. She tried to take what was in my family and find it outside the family too to help her feel better. So it was an attraction for her and it was a repellent for me. And if it had been an attraction for me, I would have ended up in the same boat. So I Mm -hmm. feel immense gratitude that that I just didn't have that genetic makeup or that that wasn't my personality. And I I just, it's tragic because she was such a smart woman and so creative and just really loved her kids before she got sick. And, um, you know, so much that she missed in her short life. It's very sad.
0: I appreciate your perspective on that because, you know, the truth is active addicts are hard to love and they're hard to understand and they're hard to help. And yeah. um, and it's hard to remember that they're sick. They're not bad people. They're sick
2: people. Oh, and, yeah.
0: you know, we often say that about ourselves in recovery too as we're beating ourselves mm-hmm. up, you mm-hmm. know, thinking, oh, I've ruined my mm-hmm. life and now I can never drink and I have to tr- do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. It's nice to be reminded that you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to get well. And especially so with something as devastating as drug addiction. So I just really appreciate your your kind thoughts around that, because I think it's language that um, we hear too much tough, you know, tough talk from people that don't. Understand addiction or who have been Really hurt by it and
1: mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Anyway
0: okay I, I'm yeah. I'm going to move on from there Because that's a whole other hour
1: and maybe we'll Take that hour sometime <laughs> <laughs> We're running like out of say, time you know, Oh yeah okay. please do oh, I, I just wanted to say that um, That you know seeing My sister's experience in Her uh, residential pr- treatment Program it what Really uh, made an Impression on me was that it and this was back in the early 90s, I guess, or maybe late 90s at that point, late 90s, it was so negative. It was just like, you can't do this. You won't do that. We're not going to get privileges until you do this and that. And, And I just thought, well, okay, but why don't we give them something to embrace? Why don't you show them what's on the other side? Why don't you art therapy or yoga or music. I mean, something that is, you know, shows what life can be when that's not part of your life. And it was a a real dream of mine um, for a while that I would start some sort of program at some point or another in my life, like a foundation or something that would fund it, that could be a uh, like a halfway house for women that were coming uh, out of addiction into a recovery. So that they could really learn uh, how to live lives that had promise, not just an abstinence from their drug of choice. And and now I don't think it's really all that necessary or maybe it is, but there's so many resources of that nature um the bubble hour and all the online resources and cheaper recoverers And so it's really nice to see that the world of recovery has evolved to recognize that, you know, it's not just what we're giving up, it's what we're moving toward. And, and we have to keep that vision firmly in mind.
0: I love that. Yeah. I, I love that. You're right. And on my, one of my, early anniversaries, a friend gave me a box of chocolate-covered strawberries and a card that said, oh. have fun discovering new things that you enjoy or new pleasures, and it was so true that I had just narrowed my focus down to only one thing, for good, for bad, for any, you know, it was my go-to, no mm-hmm. matter what, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it really I remember that so vividly because I thought it's true. I I I've changed so much since I quit drinking. I mean I the chocolate covered strawberries were absolutely a wonderful replacement for wine. And I paint <laughs> and I make jewelry and you know, I just there there is so many other things out there that can calm us and give us joy and be ways to celebrate and that is so, so true. Mm -hmm. And we're just at the end of our hour, but I I want to make sure that we um, talk a little bit more about um, cancer because you're right. Mm -hmm. I think there's Mm -hmm. a really important connection between alcohol and cancer. And Mm -hmm. um, here in Canada, our Surgeon General actually issued a statement a few years ago saying they now Recognize that there is absolutely no safe amount of alcohol that can be consumed in relation to cancer, period Mm -hmm, And that was a really mm -hmm. strong statement And um, it didn't change the sort of safe guidelines Like, you know, government agencies maybe don't have crossover in all their departments But I thought that was significant Um, Tell me what you learned about about drinking and, and breast health and cancer in general well, what I
1: learned, I didn't learn from um <laughs> from my my physicians or um I really like American Cancer Society, um that's a, a hugely prominent um awareness, fundraising arm here in the US. Uh I think they have wine events for the Amer- like fundraisers for the American Cancer Society. Uh so what I've learned, I've learned in recent years just from probably resources that the recovery community has put out. Um, I follow, for instance, Tell Better Stories on Instagram. And, Excellent resource. Uh, yeah, the uh, the account, uh, and I don't know the woman's name, I should, but uh, she's been known to highlight these Healthcare events that are serving wine and cheese to talk about women's health. Um, so, just those types of resources have been hugely illuminating to me in the past couple of years. And it, who knows, Jean? It could be that the information was always there and I just didn't want to see it, but I don't
2: think it was.
1: I really don't think it was. And I know I'll that I'll tell my you
2: what, so-
0: I I just want I'm going to interrupt you. I I have to tell you oh. that I was on the organizing committee of a cancer fundraiser for uh, 4 or 5 years in about in the early 2000s. And mm-hmm. and it was a cabaret is what we call it here in Canada, which is basically a, you know, a, a dance um with mm-hmm. a bar and the and the money from the bar was the the majority of the of the resource, the revenue. And um <laughs> One of the organizers actually quit the committee because he said, you know, there is such a link between alcohol and cancer. We shouldn't have alcohol at this event. And at the time I ah. thought, like, it was the first I'd ever heard that. And I was like, I'm not sure if that's true. And also we're not going to raise any money if we don't have alcohol at this <laughs> event because no one's going <laughs> to come. And that's where all of our money's coming from. So it just goes to show you that, I mean – that was, you know, 15 years ago or more. But mm-hmm. wow, mm-hmm. how it just, you're right. It is, it's, we know better now. I I, I know mm-hmm. better now. But we didn't then. And the Tell Better Stories, uh, it's Erin Shaw Street, is the okay. uh, the gal that runs that page. I just looked her up. So sorry, I interrupted okay. you.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. You know, the guy, what did they say that um, if you're going to drink, it needs to be moderate. And for women, that's one five ounce glass of wine a day and you know that was that no was more than pointless five a week, to me right yeah yeah that, that was point that was pointless to me it, yeah the, the, why bother um who i didn't want the first glass. i wanted the second glass and the third glass.
0: <laughs>
1: yes me too
0: me too <laughs> yeah no that it's really important and i believe the numbers and i'm I could Google it as I, as I'm doing this, but I'm scared I'll, I'll hit something wrong. And then there's our connection. <laughs> I, I believe that it is um, that when you take alcohol out, your risk of breast cancer drops by 25%. I think it is if you're alcohol free mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. the stats are similar for um, bladder cancer and, you know, your whole digestive tract, esophagus cancer,
1: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It,
0: it's all really affected. So um It's important.
1: It's a very important part of it. It is. Thank you for circling back to it because I don't know that's anything I've really heard any other uh, folks you've interviewed talk with. And I think that could be – hopefully we'll save somebody's life with this information.
0: Exactly. And, in fact, you are uh, the – the, in the last year, you're the third cancer survivor that I've had on the show. So if someone wants to go back um, in season six, I had Kate's story was about uh, breast cancer and deciding mm. to give up alcohol as a health choice subsequently. And also, um, oh, darn it, I'm drawing a blank. I can see her face. Oh, um Okay, Keep look through, it's in the title
1: (laughs) Um, Anyway, you are the third
0: And so we have talked about it a little bit But it it bears repeating and it's really, really important And you're right, you may very well not get that information From your health professional Because
1: um, they're just
0: Yeah, they're not there yet But they will be because we're going to keep pushing this Until it becomes more well, better known Um, Exactly Last thought, I just wanted to to touch on before we go. The other thing you and I have in common is the industry that we're in. Um I wasn't in, in real estate but um I was, until I retired, uh a new home contractor for 25 years. And so uh, I find with um realtors it's there's almost a celebrity aspect to it. Like, I mean, your your face is often in the paper or on bar, park benches. People know who you are. And there's a certain mm-hmm. amount of sort of professional profile that you have to maintain. And so I just mm-hmm. wonder if, for me, being a business person in a in a smaller city, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, I felt like everyone knew who I was. And I always had my game face on. And I always had to be professional and um look the part and and act the part and then I would kind of go home and drink wine, A, because I was a lady and that's what ladies do and that's what empowered, you know, that whole wine culture thing. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. But
0: also, I th- I know I had a lot of imposter syndrome and I wonder if that was something that you wrestled with and if it was how you've
1: dealt with it since you quit. And um, it wasn't really for me. Um, I had imposter syndrome for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> just that whole shame, not enough, you know, oh, you're successful, but well, you're going to screw it up sooner or later. So it, it more revolved around that than my drinking. Um, but really, I real estate is one of the areas where I feel like I just have a lot of, it's, it's not hard for me. Um, it's hard work, but I think it it plays into my natural abilities so um, I feel like it's where one of the one of the areas where I'm at home, and so that's not so much of a struggle for me. Oh, that's
0: good, that's good.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: well, in our last moments, I just wonder if you have any sort of closing thoughts or words of encouragement for listeners
1: It's it's a wonderful place to be uh, without alcohol. And uh, I I just, I'm really, I I have so much more hope for a great future than I did when I was drinking. No matter how hard I work, no matter how much I love, no matter how, how, hard I tried to make myself right I just always felt that sense of being wrong and um and I think that giving up alcohol has been such an integral part of uh healing that for me and being and being able to do the work I needed to do to to do what giving up alcohol wouldn't accomplish on its own it's it's a great place to be and um I'm happy to be um an ear if anybody wants to reach out to you in your, on your email address to talk with me about anything that has um, come up in this interview. I'd love to to I'd love to connect more with people, women that don't drink. That's one area of my life that I want to really want to develop more in the upcoming year, so um happy to initiate a conversation with any of the listeners who would like to talk with me. And I really appreciate all your time this evening, Jean. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for offering to connect with listeners. So if, if uh, anyone would like to reach Jill, you can do that by emailing the bubble hour at com. that will come to me and I will forward it on to Jill and then she can connect with you from there. And, um, I just had a, a brainwave that the other breast cancer survivor episode was Victoria. So uh, uh-huh. if you want to look back, the episodes are Victoria and Kate that were both last year. And I'm so grateful to you. You've just been so generous with your time and so open with your story. And, you know, it, it's good to be reminded that um, we don't have to hit rock bottom to make a change, that we can sort of identify that it's an obsession and it's consuming and, and taking over our life in ways we're not comfortable with and, and make a change for the better without having to, you know, have some sort of big um uh, fireworks moment in our life. So I, I also thank you for your honesty around that. That's really important. And I'm really grateful um, that you're here and congratulations uh, on your birthday thanks, and
1: on your anniversary. Thank you very much. And, um, and again, thanks for all you do as well. It's
0: my pleasure. It, it's an honor. I love it. And I just I'm so grateful for all the ways that we that we have now to reach out to one another, because I really think that connection is the key for recovery. And it It starts for a lot of people. It starts with a podcast like this or um, with reading a book or a blog and just knowing that they're not alone. And so I'm really, really grateful to you for telling your story today and um, all the best to you. Thank you so much, Jill.
1: Thank you, Jean.
0: Listeners, that's it for us for this week. Um I hope you all have a really great week. It's winter. It's going to be uh let's let's see. I'm recording this a little bit early, but anyway, we're we're into the depths of winter here at least in Canada where I am. Um wherever you are, I hope that it's sunny in your heart. And if it's not, um please reach out. There's resources available myself or so many places online. You are not alone and um, there's there's a lot of resources for you to get better and take your power back and, and make the changes you need to make in your life. That's it for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care.
2: I own it. I did it. Not proud but that was me. I'm to